this same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our church. Yet, Lord, we realize that without the Holy Spirit, Lord, our efforts are worthless. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in this work that you've called us to do, the building up of your kingdom, being a witness for you, the things that uh, are on our minds daily. Lord, we realize that it's not by might nor by power, but it's by your spirit. Lord, that we can accomplish so much more when we do so in the energy and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray again, Lord, that your spirit would breathe upon us this morning. Lord, that a fresh wind would fill our sails, that you would do a great work, Lord, not just in our hearts, but in this church, even in our community. Lord, may it spill out into our whole world. Lord, we ask that you uh, blow the wind of the Spirit into this place today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the upper room, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to his weary and defeated and deflated disciples. He took a deep breath, and from within himself, he breathed on his disciples, saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated spirit is pneuma, from which we get our words pneumatic or pneumonia. The Greek word pneuma means wind or breath. And the breath that Jesus released on his disciples was a picture of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit came from deep within Jesus, carrying the nature of Jesus with the intention of continuing the work of Jesus. In that moment, the Holy Spirit came as a gentle puff of breath to indwell his followers. Deep passed unto deep. Eternal life, the life of Jesus was imparted to the Lord from the Lord to his followers. Jesus breathed on them. But what was a gentle puff of breath on that Sunday following the resurrection became a windstorm seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost. Perhaps it was in the same upper room. The disciples had gathered there again. And once more they received the Holy Spirit, but this time in a very different way. It was a separate manifestation. Listen again to how Luke describes the disciples' monumental experience. Acts 2, 
Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You see, the breath of Jesus had now grown into a windstorm. And this was not the last spiritual windstorm in the book of Acts. In fact, they reoccur on a frequent basis. They can even occur today. In fact, I'm praying that the wind will begin to blow in this room even as I speak. Windstorms are powerful forces of nature. And they come in different varieties. There are dust storms and sandstorms and thunderstorms and blizzards and hurricanes and tornadoes. The wind swirls in and it blows hard. It drives the dust or the sand or the rain or the snow or the hail. It picks up whatever object it happens to capture. It unleashes it like a torpedo. A tornado, for example, packs winds as high as 250 miles per hour. A twister can cut a path, a swath, a mile wide and 50 miles long. Once a tornado picked up a sign in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, and dropped it 30 miles away into Queen, Arkansas. Hurricanes are another kind of windstorm. They're the massive variety. The swirl of the hurricane, or the typhoon, as they're called in the Pacific Ocean, can reach 300 miles in diameter. They can impact an entire coastline. My wife lived in South Florida, and she tells stories of her father preparing for a hurricane. He not only boarded up the windows of the house, but he would climb up into the palm trees and he would pick the coconuts lest they become storm-propelled cannonballs during the storm. A hurricane is a collision of pressures and stresses. In both a tornado and in a hurricane, it's not just the wind that causes the damage, it's the debris that it propels. And this is what happens in a spiritual windstorm. The power and dynamic and influence of the Holy Spirit swirls into the church, into a community of believers, and sweeps us off our feet. It propels us into action. The Spirit becomes the driving force behind our witness and our service and our love. A church that was just taking up space becomes an impact on its community. Hey, as in a windstorm, a gust of the supernatural. It stirs up the debris. The Holy Spirit captures the dust or the rain or the sign, and He empowers it, even launches it. And if the wind is the Holy Spirit, then you and I are the debris. I hope you're not offended by that, (laughs) that I just called you all a bunch of debris. But that's what we are. There's no better symbolism than debris. In fact, the Bible uses it. Psalm 103, verse 14, you remember the passage. It says of God, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. On our own, we are as useless to God as that dust that's on the top of your refrigerator. I know it's up there. We take the white glove. We'll find it. You're as useless as that dust on top of your refrigerator. We're like the lint in the filter on the clothes dryer. That is until the Holy Spirit captures us. Until he takes us in his influence and empowers us with boldness. 
when caught by the wind, worthless debris gets turned into spiritual missiles. A church, any body of believers, will have no real lasting impact on its community until it is stirred up and elevated and launched out on the wind of God's Spirit. And when this happens, we call it revival. The Baptist churches that I grew up in always had an annual revival. It usually consisted of several weeknights in a row. The best ones seemed to be in a tent for some reason. I'm not sure why, but that just seemed to be the case. They would bring in some guest teacher and add a soloist or a musical group, maybe even somebody who could relate to the youth. There might even be a prize for the person who brought the most people to the revival. The whole idea was to generate some excitement in the local church. But understand, this is not what I mean when I use the term revival. A biblical revival is more than a block of meetings on the church calendar. It's a spiritual windstorm. It's a movement of God's spirit in the hearts of God's people. Author Vance Havner once said, when I was a boy, preachers used to talk about holding a revival. What we really need is somebody who will turn a revival loose. Real revival is more than just holding a meeting. It occurs when God turns his spirit loose in the church and then turns the church loose on a needy world. In 1904, a Welch miner, a coal miner named Evan Roberts, had been praying fervently for revival. He was just 25 years old at the time. He was tall. He was a skinny fellow, an unlikely flashpoint for anything of colossal proportions. He'd been studying for the ministry when he asked his pastor if he could hold some evening meetings in the church. At first, the attendance was sparse. But before long, shops were beginning to close early so the employees could get to the church in time to reserve a seat for the meetings. Soon, the roadways to the church were clogged up with out-of-town seekers coming to see what was happening. Often, the services would spill over past midnight. Some lasted until 4.30 in the morning. Sin was confessed. Sinners were being converted. Homes and families that had been broken were being restored. For the next couple of years, all across the island of Wales, bars closed, jails emptied, churches were filled to the brim, even soccer matches were canceled because of conflicts with the revival. In fact, Welch miners were so transformed by the Holy Spirit that their horses had to be retrained to work without the prodding of cuss words. They'd cleaned up their language. The horses didn't know what to do. During the revival in Wales, two children were one day talking about explanations for what was going on in their community. One child said to the other, do you know what is happening in our town? The other child replied, no, I don't except that Sunday comes every day now. The first child added, why, Jesus has come now to live in our town. Hey, here are two great definitions for revival. Revival is when Jesus comes to reside and rule in a community and when it feels like every day is a day of worship. Kevin Fast is a Lutheran pastor and a strongman competitor from Ontario, Canada. 
On September the 18th, 2009, at an Air Force base in Canada, Kevin set his ninth Guinness World Record in the category of heavy pulling. He strapped himself into a harness that was connected to a C-17 cargo plane an aircraft that weighs 416,299 pounds. With his sneakers digging into the runway, he leaned forward, and with all his might, he started to pull. Well, Kevin moved that airplane 8.8 meters, nearly 30 feet, and he did it in record time, 1 minute and 16 seconds. It set the record, the world record, for the heaviest aircraft pulled by a human being. It was a tremendous act of near superhuman strength. But sadly, Kevin's feet resembles the approach that many pastors and churches have taken toward God's work. Spreading the gospel, exhibiting the love of God, planting churches is like that of the cargo plane. The strength of a few extraordinary folk are pulling it along for short distances and for brief intervals. Guys, there is a better way to move a C-17 cargo plane than try to pull it. You can just crank that baby up and let it fly. And this is what happens in a revival. When God fires up our engines and we get the wind of the Spirit under our wings, the church begins to soar. Now we're no longer inching forward. God's Spirit enables God's church to fly on the wind of God's power. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. A spiritual windstorm sent from God's throne caused the church in Jerusalem to soar spiritually. Luke paints the picture in Acts 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. When you do a close inspection on verse 2, you find some interesting insights about spiritual revivals. I want to share a few with you this morning. First, this Greek word that's translated suddenly, it means unawares or unexpectedly. You see, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, it happened spontaneously. As serious winds gather up in the atmosphere, they or as they stir up, They're tracked by meteorologists. And when the conditions become conducive for a tornado, a watch gets issued over the public airways. When a tornado is actually spotted, the meteorologists, they upgrade it to a warning. But when the Spirit of God came upon the church, there was no watch. There was no warning. They were just waiting as Jesus had told them. They were waiting on the promise of the Father. They were waiting on this power from on high. They were waiting upon God to fill them with the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit came upon the disciples, a sound was also heard. The word translated sound is the word echoes, from which we get our word echo. Here's its definition. A sound of uncertain affinity, a loud or confused noise, a roar. Now, I've never been in high winds that would constitute a tornado or a hurricane, yet I do have an account of someone who has. Let me tell you what they said. High-speed winds devastated the landscape. The wind blew so hard, the walls of the house shook. 
We looked outside through a window, and surprisingly, everything was flying away. We couldn't even open the door because it would have been impossible to close it afterward. One unforgettable thing is the whistle of the wind, like a train approaching near your house. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit came upon the church. It was like a windstorm. They heard the roar of a strong gust of wind. Luke calls it a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The word translated wind also adds some insight here. It's defined as to breathe hard or to blow. One paraphrase renders verse 2. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, a gale force. A wind from heaven rocked their world. Immediately after his resurrection, Jesus drew a puff of air and breathed gently on his disciples. But here he blows on them with a mighty, rushing, howling, gale-force wind. See, both experiences were indicative of the encounter the disciples had with the Holy Spirit at that time. At the first engagement, the disciples saw the risen Lord. They put their faith in him, and they were rewarded with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus imparted to them his nature when the Holy Spirit took up residence inside them. But at Pentecost, something different happens. Now the Spirit comes upon them for empowerment. This time, Jesus blows hard on his disciples and fills their sails with a wind that would cause the gospel ship to sail to its appointed destination despite the storms that it would inevitably face. You know, the early church was born amidst a firestorm of persecution. Did you know that originally the Greek word witness was actually the word martyr? You know, today a martyr is someone who dies for their faith in Jesus. The usage, though, was derived from the fact that most of the first witnesses paid the ultimate price to take a stand. And yet, even in such a hard, discouraging climate, the church still prevailed in its mission. And how? There's only one explanation. It was because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice, too, the word here, rushing. It means to carry. This was a wind that captured stuff in its swirl and then propelled it through the sky. It launched most of what it touched. And remember, the impact of a windstorm is produced not just by the high-velocity winds, but the winds pick up debris, and they carry that debris at tremendous speeds and for far distances. And this is what God wants to do with us. We are the debris that he wants to launch out and send out to use to strike targets that need his love and truth. People get stirred up. They get sent out in a windstorm. Missionaries get raised up and put on the road in the midst of a revival. And notice here the wind in Acts chapter 2. It was a mighty wind, we're told. I love the amplified version of this. It correctly calls it the rushing of a violent tempest blast. The word mighty means violent or forceful. This was not a mild breeze that just leaves you, you know, with your hair a little bit moosed up. It was not that. This was a tempest that rustles your hair and chaps your face and knocks you over. It picks up the pieces of your life and rearranges them in a different way. 
The spiritual windstorm is a strong wind that impacts you and dramatically alters your life. You're different after you've been touched by a mighty wind of God. And like a tornado or a hurricane, you don't experience a mighty wind without incurring some damage. You know, the power of the Holy Spirit cleans us out before he sends us off. Conviction occurs. Repentance takes place. Brokenness sets in. Sin gets confessed. Old habits are abandoned. Evil is renounced. You know, the New Testament says that we are crucified with Christ. I hope you know there's never been a more violent act than crucifixion. That's why no one should ever think that you can become a follower of Jesus and then conduct business as usual. To become a Christian is to invite a windstorm of spiritual change to blow into your life and blow out the selfishness and the pride. This rushing mighty wind definitely had a violent impact on the early church. You remember just a few days later, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They played the hypocrite. And we're told that God judged them quickly. He struck them down dead. As with most storms, there were casualties. Hey, the only people who stand in a windstorm are those who are willing to bow down. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Reminds me of the three preachers who were discussing the revivals that had occurred in each of their churches. The Baptist pastor, he said, wow, praise the Lord. We had 10 new people come to know Jesus. Well, the Assembly of God preacher, not to be outdone, he, he fired back. He said, well, we had 10 people be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when the Presbyterian pastor said, I've got even better news than that. As a result of our revival, we had 10 cantankerous people leave our church. Hey, sometimes that's what happens in a revival. Stubborn and unrepentant people who dig in their heels and refuse to change, they get convicted or they move on. People change. A spiritual windstorm is both peaceful and disturbing. God brings peace to our hearts, certainly, but he brings unsettledness to our lives. When the Holy Spirit enters us and fills us, he takes over. He shakes us up. He bakes us in the fires of adversity and makes us into what he wants us to be. A windstorm is the confluence of all kinds of pressure sails and all kinds of atmospheric stresses. My point is, if your goal is maintaining the status quo, just keeping your life neatly arranged according to predetermined plans, then a windstorm is going to be an uncomfortable place for you to be. For when stuff starts swirling around, you're no longer in control. God is in control. But if you want to touch God and to know his power, you'll want to be in the wind. For a time, the world's foremost authority on the subject of revival was a man named J. Edwin Orr. In the early 1970s, he was presenting a series of lectures on revival at South Carolina's Columbia Bible College. A student asked Dr. Orr, besides praying for revival, what can I do to help bring it about? Without hesitation, Orr replied, you can let it begin with you. See, revivals that are community-wide, that are even global and earth-shaking, you can, you can trust that it began 
with a mighty rushing wind of the Spirit blowing through and cleaning out God's house first. It began with us. Notice again verse 2. This rushing mighty wind filled the whole house. Here's another insight. The word translated filled means to cram. It means to permeate. The wind of the Spirit filled every corner of the room. Believers became so saturated with the Holy Spirit. His influence colored all that they thought and all that they did. Again, the Amplified Version describes Acts 2 verse 4. The disciples in the upper room after they had been revived by the Holy Spirit, it says they were all filled, diffused throughout their souls with the Holy Spirit. Have you been diffused throughout by the influence of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes when Kathy cooks a, a roast, she likes to cook it in the, in the crock pot. I like for her to cook it in the crock pot because then we can smell it all day long before we eat it. I mean, that slow cooking roast in that crock pot, it sends out an aroma that rises. It invades every single corner of the house. By the time we eat, everyone knows what's for dinner, that's for sure. All day long, our senses have been primed. And this is what happens in revival. Spiritual perception gets heightened. Folks begin to sense God's presence and power. His love and his joy become so thick that you can cut it with a knife. In a revival, people sometimes get saved before the pastor even preaches. They just walk in and they sense so strongly that God is there. They immediately want to respond. In an actual windstorm, Say a sandstorm on the edge of the desert. There's nowhere to escape the wind and the sand that gets stirred up. It seeps into the house through its cracks and its crevices. It comes under the doors. It even comes between the window panes. The wind's influence is inescapable. And this is the influence of the Holy Spirit in a spiritual windstorm. Revival produces such a weighty revelation of the reality of God that people are forced to consider Jesus and deal decisively with their sin. You know, in today's world, it's so easy for people to just drift through life, to just sort of shrug their shoulders toward Christianity and assume a take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude. The answer for this kind of ambivalence is a spiritual windstorm. And notice in Acts chapter 2, the word whole. This influence of the Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Greek word is holos, from which we get the word holistic. It means complete or thorough. For example, the idea of holistic medicine is that the treatment that you treat not just the human body, but you also treat the body and the soul. The treatment includes the whole person. And the influence of the Holy Spirit is also holistic. He lives inside us, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. He alters us, not just spiritually, but emotionally and mentally and physically as well. He touches us not only at church, but on the job, at the park, in our homes. He influences not just what we say or think, but how we go about our daily lives. When a spiritual windstorm blows, no corner of our life remains unaffected by the Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, the author is describing for us a spiritual revival, in essence, an ongoing windstorm. 
In Acts chapter 2, the wind blows hard. You hear it whistle, in fact. By the end of the day, 2,000 souls have been captured in its swirl. In Acts chapter 4, the house physically shakes. In Acts chapter 5, the wind whips violently. It takes out a hypocritical couple. But even the wake-up call that we refer to as Ananias and Sapphira, it doesn't diminish the freshness and the power of this mighty wind. It creates a storm of love that permeates all the disciples do. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, it sort of sums up what's going on in the midst of this windstorm as great grace and great power. That's what I want. Isn't that what you want to be a part of? Great grace and great power. And for the remainder of the book of Acts, this wind howls and blows and sends Jesus' disciples to the four corners of the earth as his light and his witness. I want to be caught up in a spiritual windstorm. In my research for this message, I discovered that hurricanes originate in a geographical area known as the doldrums. That's right. The doldrums are a narrow belt of ocean with low pressure, little if no wind, and generally calm seas. The doldrums lie near the equator between the trade winds. In the Atlantic Ocean, the doldrums are north of the equator, thus there are no hurricanes in the South Atlantic. In the Pacific, the doldrums are on both sides of the equator, thus typhoons can hit in either the northern or the southern hemispheres. Ironically, all windstorms originate in the middle of the doldrums. And let me say, the same is true spiritually. Fresh breezes of the Holy Spirit, new gusts of supernatural strength, heavenly hurricanes of revival also start in what we would call the doldrums of life. One day, a Christian, or maybe a group of Christians, they decide that they've wasted too much of their time in the spiritual doldrums. They get honest before God. They admit that their life is lacking, that they're just going through the motions of devotion, that they're living below what God intended. They realize that their Christianity is powerless, that their witness is listless, that their service for God has grown tedious, that their spirituality has become monotonous, that their morality seems meaningless. One day, this person or these people wake up floating in the doldrums. They admit their discontent, and they become desperate enough to pray to God to send the wind. This is how windstorms start. Here's what you and I need to realize. If we're in the doldrums this morning, if our life has hit a lull, it only means that we are in perfect position to catch a gust of wind. The Holy Spirit starts His work at the point of our neediness God starts his movements in the doldrums. Harley Sheffield gained notoriety through a peculiar mishap. In 1996, he was part of the 15,000-mile relay that brought the Olympic flame from Greece to Atlanta. Harley's section of the relay passed over a bridge in Tacoma, Washington. He was carrying the special flame on a bracket that he had mounted on the front of his bicycle. Suddenly, his back tire blew out. Harley lost control of the bike, and the flame went out. 
Gone. The celebrated Olympic flame was extinguished. Bystanders looked on in horror. The public gasped. The precious flame had died out. But the Olympic organizers, they didn't panic. They knew exactly where to go and exactly what to do. They reached into the van that was accompanying the torch, and they pulled out a new flame. They lighted a new flame that had been lighted by the mother flame that was traveling in the van. And here's the lesson for us. If the fire and the zeal has died out in your Christian life, hope is not lost for the mother flame. The Holy Spirit himself always travels with us. And he is ready to relight our flame when we call, humbly call on him to do so. Vance Havner once wrote this. The greatest need for America is an old-fashioned, heaven-born, God-sent revival. Throughout the history of the church, when clouds have hung the lowest, when sin has seemed blackest and faith has been weakest, there have always been a faithful few who have besought the Lord to revive his work. And God has always answered such supplication, filling each heart with his love, kindling each soul with fire from above. I love that quote because it highlights the two keys for spiritual revival. Our desperation and God's willingness. Now listen carefully. God is willing. Are you and I desperate enough to ask? I doubt if you knew this, and trust me, I couldn't have planned this if I tried. You know, sometimes pastors just fall into things that are really cool. It's just God stuff that happens. And, and this week, it was just a God thing that happened. I'm teaching these series of messages. I didn't plan this. I could never have planned this. But did you know that today starts a special observance sponsored by the National Weather Service? Get this. May 7th through 13th is Hurricane Preparedness Week. Can you believe that? I couldn't have planned that if I tried. That today, the day I'm preaching a message entitled Windstorms, today is the first day of Hurricane Preparedness Week. Talk about an act of God's providence. And I think God wants us to prepare for a spiritual windstorm. There's nothing we can do to deserve such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is ask. Oh, but we should care enough about God and about his people to ask. I don't know about you, but I long to see the day when people in our community walk through the doors of this church and be so overwhelmed by God's grace in his power, in his love, in his joy, in his peace, and his presence, that they'll desire to be saved before the service even starts, that we'll have, a, have to have our altar call before we can even start the service. Don't you desire that? That God's presence will be so heavy when we gather together that a spiritual awareness might start here that stops the gangs in our community and that dries up the drug traffic? and it changes the climate in our schools, and it saves families that are broken and are on the rocks, don't you wish that 
God does something here that will affect that? I do. Today, I'm asking God for a windstorm. And I'm anticipating gusts here this morning. But you know what? I'm asking you to join me in doing the same. You know, you got to ask too. You know, the pastor's prayers are one man's prayers, but the congregation, you have to ask the Lord for revival. Are you praying for revival? You know, it, it's kind of like, I can want it, but, but can you, do you want it? I can't want it for you. You, you know, you have this with your kids, I'm sure. I have it with my. I mean, you, you want so much for your kids. You, you love your kids. You want the best for your kids. You want so much for your kids, but you know what? You can't want it for them. All you're wanting doesn't, doesn't it's not going to cause them to want it. They've got to want it for themselves. And you know, I want it, but I can't want it for you. You've got to want it too. You've got to be willing to pray. We've all got to be willing to pray and ask God for this spiritual windstorm. We're going to have the worship team come up and lead us in a song. And then this morning, we're going to give pause. And we're going to ask you to pray. We're going to begin by praying all together. And then I'm going to bring a microphone around, and I'm going to have some of you pray. And this morning, I want us to pray and ask God to do what only God can do. I can't do it. You can't do it. Only God can do it. But I want us to ask God to send the wind, to send revival to our church and to our community.